from the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, this is In Conversation With, supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors, presented by Stuart Alford and produced by Fresh Air Studios Plymouth. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce with another edition of our In Conversation With podcast here from Fresh Air Studios and in partnership with Westcott's. This is an unusual one because usually I have one or two guests, we talk a lot about them personally and what have you, but we've got a sort of maritime special sort of centred around Plymouth and South Devon. I am joined in the studio by Richard May, who's the CEO for Plymouth and South Devon Freeport, by Elaine Hayes, who's the interim CEO, I think we have to say interim at the moment, for the National Marine Park, and Richard Allen, who's the Harbour Master and CEO of Catwater Harbour Commissioners. Welcome all. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Good. You looked at me in shocked horror there. (laughs) Four CEOs in a room. God, this is going to be painful, isn't it? Because none of us have an opinion on anything or (laughs) like the sound of our own voice or anything like that. I'm only speaking for myself on this. I think all the egos have to be left at the door. Leaving egos at the door now. Thank you, Elaine. So where to start? Right. I'm going to start with Richard and May. You're the CEO of the Freeport. Come on, then. You're probably already fed up of answering this question. But what is that and what will it bring to Plymouth? It's the UK government's sort of top priority in terms of its levelling up agenda and it's, there's eight free ports across England. There's one going in Scotland and there's some coming into Wales as well and effectively it's a chance for us to really bring some regeneration work to South Yard in Devonport and also two other tax sites on the A38 and effectively incentivise private sector investment to develop those sites, bring on manufacturing, bring on logistical supply chain businesses, and really 3,500 jobs, of which hopefully most of them are sort of high value, so over the average wage of the local area, and high-tech businesses coming into the Freeport tax sites. In addition, there's a custom site offer, which means that businesses can bring in their components and their various elements to their manufacturing process, tariff-free, VAT-free, until they actually land in the actual UK market. If it's exported and re-exported, then there's no tariff applied to those goods. That means we become very competitive. It's effectively a post-Brexit strategy in that regard, so we can have new international trade relationships that are made from it. Which is much needed. Thank you. That is a good summary. And Elaine, same question to you. You're the CEO of the National Marine Park. What is that and what will it bring to Plymouth? The National Marine Park is a place and a space where we can bring people, planet and prosperity together. So what we're looking at doing is creating the right relationship for people to have with the sea, bring them back to the sea. We've tended to face somewhat inland over the years. and Actually, the sea is vitally important to Plymouth from a heritage point of view, from a cultural point of view, from an economic point of view, and important as well from an environmental point of view. Plymouth Sound is possibly the most designated body of water around the coastline of this country so absolutely vital that we look after it and we need people to help us to do that and they need to understand what they need to do to be able to do that yeah it's funny you should say that because Mackie even that's probably 20 years ago but David Mackie said Plymouth has turned its back on the sea yes which is true there's a disconnect between the city centre and the sea I was interviewing once a guy who owned a patisserie on Mutley Plain and he had come down from London just to do a temp job in what is now the Crown Plaza and he said, I went up on the hoe and I was looking out and I thought, this is amazing. He's from the East End. He's a real proper East Ender. He said, the only water I saw in the East End was in a puddle and I just wanted to shout at all these people, why are you not looking at the sea? He said, they were all walking down, looking at the floor or on their phones and he couldn't believe how fabulous it was. 
Yes, I mean, it's the absolute jewel in the crown of Plymouth and we need to celebrate it, share it and understand it better so that we can look after it for this and future generations. And we'll come back to how we can do that. And of course, Chamber massively support it. It's funny, the words you use there are strategic priorities for this year are people, planet, purpose. So those Ah. words you used about people, planet, prosperity is very much aligned with our values. And Richard Allen, sorry, we've got two Richards, so I've got to define which Richard I'm asking. Richard Allen, you are Harbour Master and CEO of Catwater Harbour Commissioners. What does that entail? What is your job? The job, Harbour Master, Chief Executive, Catwater Harbour, what we do first of all is we're the commercial port of Plymouth. It's where we facilitate all the import, export, trades here into the city. We're the statutory harbour authority for that area, which means that's our responsibility. And we're also the competent harbour authority for Plymouth, so we're responsible for the civilian pilotage of all vessels throughout Plymouth and its waters, ensuring safety of navigation, the environment, and all the statutory duties that are put on us as a port authority. Elaine, you're an environmentalist by background. Is that largely what NMP is about, and does it conflict at all with the roles of our other two guests? Yes, I am an environmentalist by background. I spent 25 years trying to persuade people that the environment is as important, but not more important, than people and the economy. I have worked with the fishing industry, I've worked in a variety of sectors, and the environment is vitally important, as we are now finding out with the climate crisis, the nature crisis. But I think I'm pretty much in alignment with the gentleman on the side of me, because the National Marine Park is being set up using the sustainability agenda. So if we go back and say, actually, how do we make sure that we can all continue into the future? Well, we need a great environment, we need fabulous jobs that keep people engaged and employed so that they can spend money, And we need to make sure that there are strong, vital communities who can enjoy the space that they've got and the wonders of Plymouth Sound. So it's sustainability in every way, not just sort of environmental, but economic and what have you. The original definition of sustainability is around economic, environmental and social. So that's the model that we're using. And if you think of it as a three-legged stool, if you cut any leg too short, it it falls falls over. So that very much works for us because it's a recognition that actually you don't affect change by telling people what to do. You affect change by persuading people that they want to do it for themselves. Yeah, with the Chamber's own net zero work, well, I've said we mustn't take a thou shalt not approach because it just turns people off. It's more about, well, show me what to do and how we can do it. And Richard Allen, if you don't mind me asking then, so shipping traditionally hasn't perhaps been the most environmentally friendly way to do things. Are you as a port and as a commission trying hard to do things along the environmental front as well? Yeah, there's a national level, there's a government level, there's Maritime 2050, which we're all striving towards. We've all got government targets that we're trying to meet. The shipping industry, that's regulated more by the IMO, which is an international level. There are regulations that they hit. But for an example, for that operates with the ships in Plymouth, Plymouth's in a sulphur emission controlled area. So we've actually got a designated air quality space. So when the ships actually are transiting in and out of Plymouth, they do switch to a low sulphur fuel. Whereas when you head west and you go past Falmouth, traditionally these ships will switch back to a high sulphur heavy fuel, which is cheaper to operate. But when they come to Plymouth, they have to switch, and that is checked by the local authorities, such as the MCA. That's funny. That's ringing a bell with something. I was on a ship. I best not say here in case I offend them or whatever. But I looked back when we were massively at sea, somewhere across the Bay of Biscay, and there was a very large yellow sort of line of smoke behind us that I don't remember seeing as we came in and out of Plymouth. But yes, that's what that's about. Ch- is chances are we're yeah we're in a sulphur emission controlled area, and sometimes when you do see 
emissions from certain vessels quite often it might be water from scrubbers such as the ferries people might see that and go that's not good but actually quite often that's a water vapor coming from the vessels so elaine i was concerned that whoever took this job was going to have to spin a lot of plates or keep a lot of stakeholders happy and that there may be a sort of battle between the stakeholders as what their needs are are you finding that the environmentalists the military everyone's got a different view of how plymouth sound should be used is that difficult for you treading a constant tightrope I wouldn't describe it as a battle because I don't think it's a conflict situation. I think it's much more about how do we find that sweet spot where we can all deliver what we need to. So Richard, for example, talks about what he wants to achieve with the catwater. But the catwater aims to be here for the next 100 years. Well, if it's going to be here for the next 100 years, it's going to need to be mindful of all the things that are coming over the hill that it needs to comply with. It needs to understand what its customers want as well in terms of moving towards net zero. So actually, we have more that unites us than divides us. Mm. And my conversations with the military are very much on the understanding that this is a military port. So operationally, they have to have the control that they need. But we've not yet found a point of conflict. So we were. You don't want to fall out with the military. Their, their guns are bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't carry a gun. No, it's, yeah. I don't find it helpful in negotiation. <laughs> yeah, I do think there was a perception that we're not on the same page. But we're all humans and we've all got kids and grandchildren. Mm. We're all thinking about the future and what we can do for the best. So underlying everything is that driving ambition that we want the very best for this city. And it's funny you should say that what's best for the city i've seen the city rebranded a number of times i've seen us as positively plymouth i've seen us as spirit of discovery or as only janas can crossing out the very and we were spirit of disco for a while (laughs) but when britain's ocean city was announced i sort of got it i was like okay well if that's what we are i'll get behind it and what have you but when i heard about the national marine park i thought yes that's what we are it brings a sense of civic identity and civic pride and does that resonate with you is that what you think we can do with the national marine park bring back that civic pride I think that's part of it. I want people to value what we have and to love it. I want them to love it the way I've loved the environment and also the city. I mean, you have to understand, my dad lived in Mutley. So I played in the cemetery up the road and he used to bring me down to the Barbican, which was not what it was then. Mm. I'm not going to reveal a year, it's best. So I just want people to go, I love living here. I love what I can do here. And from that we get a zeitgeist that develops that when Rich has got amazing jobs developing in the Freeport, people go, why would I want to go and work anywhere else? Because Plymouth is an amazing city. I'm going to choose there to bring up my family. I'm going to choose there to invest for my career. And that's what the National Marine Park can bring. Funnily enough, I was going to ask, Richard, do you think the Freeport can do that too, bring a sense of civic pride? Should we be proud of what we've got here? Totally. And I think the reason why the government chose us as a free port over others was that we actually put forward the offer of what we're doing in Plymouth Sound and across the piece in terms of innovation and bringing on those new solutions, the new tech jobs of tomorrow, specifically around marine autonomy and clean propulsion systems. So the whole net zero agenda was front and centre of our bid. And I think that if you are working within the National Marine Park, etc., we want to work in concert with them in terms of all those sort of digital twinning of what's going on on the seabeds, monitoring the environment. And a lot of us don't realise that actually we've got the highest concentration in Plymouth of marine scientists in Western Europe. And they have a lot of technology of which we want to bring on that latest technology of submersive systems that go down and do the inspections of the seabed for marine science, but also for the new opportunity of the offshore renewable energies off the Celtic Sea. And we need to get ready for that as 
as a city and the local area. And therefore, the Freeport is well positioned to bring on those new product and the manufacturers of those product doing it here within a Freeport setting. Yeah, you know, I always think I wish I could take my members everywhere I go with me because I'm lucky enough to have been to see some of this stuff, like Plymouth Marine Laboratories. You know, you go there and you speak to scientists from all over the world are there and you ask them what you're doing here and they look at you as if you're mad and say, because this is where it's happening. This is incredible. And we had Princess Anne recently come down and open the National Centre for Marine Autonomy, which is just incredible. It was the first time that we actually brought everything together under one roof and it was so compelling, all the different technologies that we have already produced Produced and a look to the future ones as well. And I think it will be really important for the Freeport to showcase that and make sure that some of our international partners know what we're already capable of doing and the fact that we've got the propensity to do a lot more and bring on some international partnerships, bring in some foreign direct investment into the UK, into Plymouth, <coughs> to work alongside us. And I think some of the key things that we have is obviously Smart Sand Plymouth. So you know, it's a thousand square kilometres of instrument coastal waters, some of which is connected by 5G, some of it's connected by 4G and a mesh network, which helps us bring together some of those assets that we have within the Plymouth Sound and its coastal waters. It's the most understood piece of water probably in the world. Whack across some technology and understand it even better. And with all that stock of data means that we've got something very, very special that a lot of other nations would love to have access to and work along in terms of prototyping and bringing on their solutions and so that's what we want to do as a showcase and like any business like any sector regulations are key and Plymouth is leading in terms of regulations around marine autonomy and clean propulsion systems yeah because maritime laws have been set here for hundreds and thousands of years and now suddenly suddenly it's going to change yeah because you've got people well exactly not people you've got things moving around that aren't actually controlled by people Yes, and we're very fortunate that whilst we have a busy port, it's not the busiest port. Mm. So we can actually trial all this sort of collision avoidance systems, etc., in a water that is well managed. And we understand the movement of the key vessels. Mm. So it's things like that that really make us very special. How did you get into this? Because didn't you work for sort of banking accountancy type organisations? I was always in technology. So I was in the technology side in investment banking, deploying effectively the solutions within the banks. And then prior to that was doing standard business consulting. Ah, right. Because I saw you'd been to Kuwait and Manila, was it? Other places? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I set up a business in Kuwait when I was about in my early 20s, straight after the liberation of Kuwait, restarting effectively their refinery sector getting heat exchangers and boilers back up and running. Mm. And that was great. It was really good fun. And after that, joined Pricewaterhouse and went out to the Far East, into the ASEAN countries, doing what effectively was customer solutions, so CRM systems. And you more recently worked for Oxford Innovation, which included leading incubation programs, it says on my notes, incubation programs for the UK Space Agency. Yeah, now that so, sounds exciting. So, Oxford Innovations is one of the gems of the UK. It manages a good sort of 20 to 30 innovation centres around the UK. And I was the innovation director for them, which meant that, you know, making sure that small businesses had innovation plans, that they are leveraging the sort of knowledge transfer network and the Innovate UK grants and all the other aspects of 
support there for SMEs and really bringing on the new products and new international trade that was available to them. So really helping them with setting up for export and doing the exports. Often that's where the growth can come from. Indigenous markets aren't always there for some of these businesses. And then working with the UK Space Agency, we set up an incubator in Hampshire and in Surrey. And they had two cohorts through. So we had about 20 businesses through. And it was really interesting because we did it in a novel way. We worked with the University of Southampton, University of Surrey, and we indented some of their graduates into those cohorts. So over a summer period, they would actually build the prototypes within this downstream space sector. And I think quite a few of them ended up with a job with those SMEs and a lot of the products actually got released and actually got some sales. So it was a fantastic piece of work. Exciting job. Speaking of which, Richard Allen. You've had some exciting roles in the past, too. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile. I've got to ask you about being master on the Odyssey Explorer, working on a number of high-profile subsea explorations. That sounds like the most romantic role in the world. Is it as good as it sounded? My background primarily was a specialist in subsea construction and offshore subsea work. So the Odyssey Explorer was a little bit of work I used to do on my leave working out of Cornwall, looking for a certain high-value wreck that was supposedly went down in the south coast approaches somewhere. Supposedly, we haven't found it yet. I don't think it was ever found, but I found it fascinating because they got me in for my experience when they thought they'd located, say, 10 or 15 sites where it could have been. So we actually didn't dive on it, but went and investigated it. We didn't find it, but I found it amazing because we were finding U-boats, Second World War planes. And because I was new, I found it fascinating. But to the people on board, that was their job. There were volunteers from NASA, from Canadian Special Forces. Everyone used to go and work on this vessel because they had an enthusiasm for wrecks. But I just found it amazing seeing a U-boat. And we'd obviously lay a reef, speak to the families back in Germany. But because of the archaeologists and the historians on board would enjoy that my enthusiasm, because it's new, they would write a report for me. And within five minutes of seeing a U-boat, they would be telling me who they'd sunk, who the captain was. And it was just amazing to see these vessels off our coast. That's incredible. And so what brought you back to Plymouth? Because you're a Tavistock boy, yeah? Yeah, just outside Tavistock. How did you come back and end up as CEO and Harbour Master? So I've worked abroad all my life, uh, but still been based here and just got to that point in life where you'd worked your way up through the ranks, had command, you'd achieved quite a lot of things offshore, young family. It was that time where you either get stuck, trapped by the money, or you come shoreside and put in your roots properly and build a career shoreside. And that's what you've done. Most seafarers get to that point where they either stick and they get stuck or they take that dive and come ashore. And you have. And you've got how many people working with you now in the Catwater Harbour Commissioners? Probably about 40 people providing a 365-day, 24-7 service to the port. Elaine, you don't, do you? And yet I've seen you were quoted as saying that the sheer scale of ambition for the National Marine Park is hugely exciting. That's got its challenges when you don't have a huge team. So who have you got? You and... Or is it just you? It doesn't work like that in practice because I'm very fortunate to have the wraparound care and support of not just organisations like the Freeport and the Harbour and the Naval Base, but the City Council is supportive. I also have support of organisations and networks that I've worked with before who know my background and know my ambition and want to come alongside and want to work with us, which is absolutely fantastic. And actually my biggest challenge is just trying to make sure everyone's facing the same way, that everyone's getting the same information 
information and I don't always succeed with that. So occasionally you get somebody who's feeling a bit grumpy because, you know, I've not managed to stay in touch with them enough. Mm. So it's just about keeping that going and building the dream for want of a better description for it. So we're currently building a five-year delivery plan which looks at how we're actually going to make the National Marine Park a reality and how people can actually grasp hold of it and get involved because that's what it's about. It's not about what I do. It's actually about what I catalyse just through being here. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But Richard, you've got a lot to achieve in a very short time and with a relatively small team, haven't you? You're up against it in some ways in terms of getting the free port filled. Yes, there's a lot of different deadlines. The key one is the tax incentives on the tax sites are September 2026, which is, you know, only a three and a bit years away. And we've got to develop effectively all the key infrastructure and actually develop the actual manufacturing and other buildings there within that time frame. So that really is at pace. It was always supposed to be a policy at pace to really kickstart our response to Brexit and levelling up, etc. But I think there have been some delays in the first couple of years in central government in terms of approving the various things within the Freeport. I can't believe central government delay anything. Well, it has happened. And <laughs> and so we're hopeful that... Great political that, answer there. Yeah. It's hopeful that we can get some extra time yeah. to be able to achieve that. But I think it does make it hopefully prioritises people's thinking, it gets it a little bit urgent in terms of those that are keen to set up within the Freeport. We do need to bring that private sector investment forward very readily within the next 12 to 18 months at the outside. Yeah. You've announced the first one the at first, the day of recording. I saw well, a press release this morning. Exactly. So the first one has been bagged yeah. and it's a fantastic piece of investment. 90 jobs building some fast armoured vehicles with Supercat and Babcock partnership. And I think it's doing exactly what we want to do, which is to bring jobs into some very deprived wards in the UK, in, in this case in Devonport. And it's jobs across the piece. So it's starter jobs, early stage jobs, getting people back into work, but also some high tech and high value jobs as well. The conversation will continue. But first, Chamber Chiefs Quickfire Questions. Hello there and welcome to the Chamber Chiefs Quickfire Questions section of the podcast where we have a guest on the line ready to be grilled, interrogated by me and I'm really thrilled to be joined by Natasha, well Tasha Vigil from Black Wall Street London. Come in Tasha. Hi, good afternoon all, how are you? I'm good. Now Tasha, when I just said hello to you before the microphone was switched on or the recorder was switched on, you gave me the nicest hello I've ever heard. What did you say? Absolutely, it's my mantra, universal blessings in a Well, it made my day. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for being a guest on the show. I just want to ask you, before we do the two-minute quickfire, so tell me about Black Wall Street London. Yeah, so Black Wall Street London is an Afrocentric retail store located in Green Lane Shopping Centre in Barnstable, Devon. We're not just a retail space, we also do in-store events like book signings, candle-making workshops, spoken word poetry, really like a community events hub as well. And you're in Barnstable, why Barnstable? Well, I live in South Moulton, which is about 20 minutes away from Barnstable. I had this shop in Camden High Street in London before as a pilot, but I was over the London chaos and I've been here for about six years. So after the pivot in business for COVID and the pandemic, I thought, no brainer, there's nothing like it here. Let's give it a shot. Well, I couldn't have put it better myself. Why would anyone want to be in big smoky London when you can have lovely, lovely Devon? Listen, I say give me the cows and the sheep any day and I'll talk to them. 
<laughs> yeah, I spend a lot of time talking to animals, but that's because, well, I've got Charlie here in the studio with me. It's not good for a podcast because nobody can see it, but yeah, I've got my dog curled up at my feet, which is very lovely. Where do you source your products from? Oh, so globally infused we are. So we do primarily Africa. We do West Indies. We also do UK-based brands and companies and organisations. And I'm passionate about collaborating with local artists as well. So pretty much everywhere. Well, that's fantastic. And quick plug then. So how can people find out more? Have you got a website? Yep. So you can go to blackwallstreetlondon.com. That's fantastic. Thank you. So are you ready for your two-minute quickfire? Well, Are you ready? Oh, my goodness. Now I'm scared. Right. Well, that's the best answer I've had yet. So your two minutes is going to start now. Chamber Chief's quickfire questions. How did the business start? Um, Fire my candle making company. I'm wanting to get candles on a shop shelf, so I thought I'd do it myself because I couldn't get in anywhere. What's your strap line? Um, My strap line is universal blessings in abundance. I love it. Most inspirational person? Um, My mum. Who do you like to meet? Ooh, I would love to meet uh, Bob Marley. Oh, I nearly pressed the buzzer there. I, I, I was going to... Oh, I, I missed it. I'm going to press one anyway. I'm, I'm missing pressing the buzzer. Um, what makes you laugh? Um, farting. <laughs> what makes you cry? Um, world War. Yeah, me too. Business you wish you owned? My own. You do. Claim to fame? Um... Ex-vocalist, used to sing while I was living in Mexico for 10 years, opened up many jazz festivals for George Benson, Tower of Power, claim to fame. Amazing. Personal advice? Um, feel the fear and do it anyway. Ooh. I, I said vice. Yeah, that's advice. What about vice? You must have some advice. Um, personal advice is probably hmm, animals. That's not advice. Cat or dog? Dog. Of course. Wine or beer? Neither. Don't drink. Oh, bad, bad answer. Sorry, that's not acceptable. EastEnders or Corrie? EastEnders. Okay, give me that. Well, you're from London. I suppose it's got to be, isn't it? Uh, best <laughs> holiday? Mexico. Used to live there for 10 years, but first it was a holiday. Adventure or lounging by the pool? Uh, adventure? Yep. Football or rugby? Rugby. Innie or outie? <laughs> Innie. <laughs> oh, two minutes is up. That was too quick. I wanted to know more about you, Tasha. That was brilliant. Oh, look, thank you so much for that. You made me smile. You made me laugh. And that was a good bit of fun. I hope you enjoyed that. Excellent. I did. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem at all. Not too scary. So, Tasha Vigil from Black Wall Street, London. Thanks for joining us. Big loves. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. In conversation with, supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Now, back to the conversation. Richard, you've got some ambitious plans too, I think. Haven't you recently taken back control, is it, of Turnchapel Wharf, did I read? The Barbican Landing Stage. The Barbican Landing Stage, that's it, sorry. Yeah, I nearly gave you something you didn't know you had. That would have been worrying, wouldn't it? That would be good, Turnchapel Wharf. The Barbican Landing Stage, Stage, that's right. So you've got the lease back from the City Council. We've leased it to the Council and we've agreed to surrender that lease for the benefit of Plymouth and the users that use it. Okay, what does that mean? 
what we want to do we need to safeguard our access to yeah. our vessels to run an international port yeah and at the moment to get over that we currently have to go through the council part of the pontoon so we just want to remove that risk and take responsibility for the landing stage and actually drive the visitors drive the tourism drive exactly what you want to do drive the usage of it and really really make that commercial facility better mm. get a return on it and make sure that the maintenance is done and invested in to ensure that that's there for another 50 years mm. so a huge potential for plymouth isn't there in terms of shipping and with autonomous shipping being sort of trialed here do you see that plymouth's going to grow as a port are we going to have more larger ships what's stopping us sort of becoming a major competitor to southampton or something like that? so we'll never be a competitor to southampton but Plymouth is at that cusp now where we really need to look at investing in our maritime infrastructure. I think I might have told you before that we're on that curve. We're 15 years behind on that curve, but we're still on that curve. Mm. Maritime is in the government's eye. Local authorities, maritime, people are realising that the only way they're going to hit their net zero targets is through maritime, trade, water transport, and that's from passengers moving around the city by water through electric vessels, clean maritime, which is going to link closely with all our other stakeholders to the ships. We've got hybrid vessels now coming into the port. It is the future. We need to invest into the port to make sure that Plymouth and the South West can support the future. And we know what's coming. The trend for larger ships continues to grow. Ships have got bigger. Plymouth hasn't got bigger. So we need to facilitate somehow more space or more berthing. Floating offshore wind, that's a huge, huge market. And we're talking to Richard, training providers. Mm. The investment that the Southwest is going to see from that is going to be vast. We need to be make sure that we've got our finger in that pie. It's not going to be a big finger compared with other major ports, but that little finger in that pie will be a larger investment than many other Investments a in finger in the pie is important. It's still going to be massive for Plymouth and, and the Southwest. And the free port in Plymouth allows us to catalyse absolutely immediate activity in this. Mm. We need to be making those support vessels in Plymouth. We need to be making those new propulsion systems in Plymouth for that size of vessel. And there's no reason. I mean, we've got a huge centre of excellence in the Southwest with the University of Exeter in terms of clean mobility. Mm. We need to make sure that that's happening in a free port setting, and we are bringing on those manufacturers of those vessels whether they're uk manufacturers or hopefully some overseas ones to support that and also those intelligent systems in terms of docking and capture release type technologies bear in mind a lot of these vessels could be autonomous they could be going out to those offshore farms doing the data retrievals the simple fixes or whatever monitoring surveying type activity and that's what we're going to have as our strong point and we just need to make sure that we continue to progress those technologies in the uk and in the southwest and in Plymouth. And if the Freeport can agglomerate and bring together a cluster that we would term as a super cluster because it's not just indigenous, it is international in yeah. its essence, that's what we want to achieve. I hear that vessels are being built now that the crew haven't got access to the engine room. That's all run from the shore. So we're getting to the point where the limiting factor on a ship is the people, isn't it? I mean, it's very hard to hijack a ship if it doesn't stop and there's nobody to hijack. It just keeps going. And that technology is being led from here. I understand ship's captains of the future could be captaining several vessels at once and just have a bank of screens and be sitting in the university somewhere. Yeah. That's already been done from the Turnchapel Wharf to a degree. Yeah. Has it? It's already okay. happening. But for the, the bigger ships, the vessels that we laying the anchors, doing the works for the floating offshore wind, I think that's quite a way to go yet. Mm. Okay. But a prime example is Fugro, who are based in Turnchapel Wharf. They've got yeah. an ROV training centre there, and they've done all their trials in the Smart Sound recently for their new 
14-metre offshore vessels. They've just had approval from the offshore sector to actually operate inside the 500-metre zone around a facility, completely unmanned. So that was tried, tested, went through its paces in Plymouth and has now just got sign-off to work on the international offshore market. It's incredible, isn't it? Do I sound like an old fuddy-diddy going, that's a bit sort of Star Trekky to me, but it's just amazing. You see, what it does, Stuart, is it opens up a whole career path for people who wouldn't imagine marine sector or maritime sector as something they wanted to get involved in. It's someone who might be into sort of gamification or whatever it might be. And suddenly there's a whole new set of jobs for a whole set of different type of people coming through. And I think that's what's exciting. Well, it's funny you should mention that. My next question was going to be about skills. So where are the people going to come from? How are we going to upskill them? Because Elaine, in your, I don't know if you call it a manifesto or whatever, but amongst other things, the park in the sea aims to provide new employment opportunities and career pathways in sustainable future ocean jobs. So that's that. You've mentioned skills. You've mentioned skills, Richard. So what are we doing to make sure this is all joined up and that these people are going to be ready for these industries? Because there's already a labour shortage. Yeah, I think to pick up on the use of the technology and how that then moves into developing skills. From a marine park perspective, we're really excited by the technology and innovation that is already within Plymouth because we start to be able to engage people with something that they don't understand. So if you want somebody to take up a role in something, they need to understand what they're taking role. So if I say to you, Stuart, would you like to go and be a park ranger? You go, well, I know what a park is. I roughly know what a ranger does. Yeah, that sounds like a really great job. Yes, I'd be interested. In that I can find out resources about that I can find out opportunities mm. to get a role doing that kind of work if I said to you would you like to be involved in monitoring the seabed through an autonomous vessel would you know what I was talking about no so the point is how can you encourage people to come into a profession if they don't actually understand what they're buying it's a bit like asking somebody to go and buy something from a supermarket but it doesn't have any writing on the outside because they don't know what they're buying into so the first thing we do by using our technology is explain to people what it is they're getting for their money mm-hmm. then we generate excitement in our younger generation I mean when we talk about having vessels that are controlled from the shore I mean Rich will tell you that working at sea is hard work mm. you know it's a grueling job I mean I've been out at sea I've worked with fishers I've been on boats I know what it's like and I only did it for very short periods of time and the desire to do that kind of work is quite unique and is quite a small group of people if you turn around and say actually you're going to do a fabulous job which helps us protect the environment helps Plymouth be at the centre of everything make sure that we're moving towards net zero because the new generation is far more interested in what the job does in terms of the wider world and the purpose exactly so we then have that opportunity to say to people look what we can do and then we simply align that with our brilliant city college with our universities and we just make sure that we actually tear out the jobs in terms of the opportunities because not everyone wants to be the professor creating the code for the autonomous vessel other people want to be the person who's actually controlling that vessel and get the reward for their work from being the person who's monitoring what's happening with that vessel or is repairing and maintaining that vessel so we need to signpost the opportunity make sure that we have the right opportunities within the city for people to learn and then wrap all of that up with a nice bow that says come and do all of this in a national marine park yeah some of it's a communication piece isn't it because we're doing the local skills improvement plan on behalf of the department for education for the whole heart of the southwest area and what we're finding is that some people don't even know these jobs exist they wouldn't know how to get into these jobs and we talk about telling a story and making sure that they see what an exciting world there is there And Richard, I mean, you've not left 
seafaring really have you i mean you're not at sea so I won't, I won't lie that the only reason i think you really join to sea is to see the world enjoy traveling love seeing the world i was lucky enough to see south antarctica to every continent in the world to see the world is the bottom line story and that was the main reason i did it enjoyed it worked my way up and i couldn't leave it completely hence still working in the ports environment is something i'm passionate for do you ever look at the ships leaving and think, I'd just like to climb on board and go to some exotic place that it's going to, or is it not? I think every seafarer that comes ashore goes through a rocky few years period with their mm. family where the thought of coming home quite often is right, go back to sea again, because obviously it's a bit more money offshore working. Mm. And obviously you probably see more of your family when you're working abroad than you do at home, believe it or not. Really? Because yeah. when you're on leave, you're on leave. Mm. But when you're working in a normal job, you're out the house first thing in the morning and you're back late at night. Richard's a very passionate advocate for skills. So talk about your apprentices and the young people that you've been working with in the Catwater. I was going to say about the skills and the relationships and people not knowing about the job. We're really pushing maritime for careers. We do a lot of work with schools, going into schools. We host a school every Thursday, a primary school. We lay out a world map on our boardroom table and we have all the 24 cargoes, for example, that are coming in and out of the port. And we lay them out on the world map and the kids have got to see where that cargo goes from and to and how Plymouth is the key for all of that. So the teachers actually enjoy that more than the kids, I think, because they have no idea of the cargoes importing and exporting out of Plymouth. (laughs) Well, do you know, it's funny. I've learned more about geography Mm -hmm. from having an app. I can track aircraft. When they go overhead, I go, where's that going? And then I look at it and go, I've never heard of that. And then I have to look it up. And I've learned about all these exotic places in the world. Well, you've done a bit of traveling, Richard. May, you've been around the world a bit as well. Yeah, yeah. I spent eight and a half years working abroad in Asia and in the Middle East. And I think actually I'm really excited for the next chapter, really, because a lot of our potential investors will come from those areas. And so I've got networks of people I got to know when I was there. And hopefully we could start to bring on some of their businesses. But yeah, travel is something that I think everyone in their 20s and possibly 30s should do. It's a must do. It really changes who you are and your view on life and how you connect with other people. It's a shame that we don't have some sort of special, used to sort of do military service or whatever. We ought to have a service that gets people to go abroad somehow or another. Yeah. Do you know, I genuinely have always thought there should be a not military conscription, but some sort of service where you could join and you go off and do humanitarian work and stuff like that. Yeah, Yeah. the VSO obviously do that, but we don't push the VSO like we should, in my opinion. And have you got any sort of seafaring background? You don't mind me saying you look like a sailor. You've got the beard. You've got the cardi. Are you I, I, I could play this one, couldn't I? Yeah, you could. <laughs> I mean, I've always loved the water, but it's all coastal stuff, nothing ocean-going. I used to have a Falmouth working boat built oh. in Mevagissi from the 1920s, and you'd often see me as a teenager and early 20s going off around Falmouth Bay, mm. and it was a fantastic experience. But I don't really get much time nowadays, to be honest, yet. Because of the busy job. <laughs> You're being a martyr now. He's telling me he's working too. I'm just working That's where the hair's grown. Ah, right. All gone grey. Lane, you mentioned you've been at sea a bit. I mean, do you love the sea and the travel? Yeah, I was very lucky. We lived in South London, but my dad was a conservationist before the word was invented. And we spent all of our summers down on the south coast. So I was shrimping and lugworming. He was a fisherman. He used to have me diving down holes to pick lug out as fast <laughs> as my little legs carry. Well, because I was closer to the ground being a kid, you know, and he used to fish and he taught us to fish. Yeah, I mean, absolutely love the sea. I've always loved the sea. Went and lived in the Midlands for a while and spent every weekend driving to Hunstanton to go and pick seal pups off the beach and rescue and rehabilitate them because I could not bear to be away from the sea. So I'd 
would leave on a Friday night and I'd come back in the wee hours of Sunday to Monday morning because living in the Midlands did not fulfil my need to be near the sea. I don't know if it's still true, but QAB Marina, they used to call them the Birmingham Navy because just about everyone came down at the weekends from Birmingham, didn't they? You could hear all the Brummie accents around the QAB Marina. Not surprising at all. The sea is part of our soul. You know, we are an island nation Mm. somewhere in our deep in everybody's gene pool. There is that need to reconnect with the sea. And there's a huge amount of work which has been going on looking at the evidence because we talk a lot about green space. And I think we learned during lockdown how important green was to us. Mm. Well, if you think that green's important, the evidence is showing that blue is far more important than green well, in terms of your mental well-being. Funny you should mention that. I mean, firstly, if I don't see the sea at least once a week, I go a bit stir crazy and twitchy i need to go and look at it and make sure it's still there and nobody's stolen it and i get real solace from the sea i'm currently trying to buy a boat which i've found out is a very difficult and expensive process <laughs> but there we go a hole um, to which you pour money oh yeah well somebody told me boat stands for bung on another thousand and they're not wrong i mean it's just it's been i don't own the bloody thing yet and it's cost me thousands already but yeah and that well-being piece to see the sea is really important we're finding that people who do the wild swimming are getting the benefits of that and from an economic point of view you know lots of people are talking about our blue green economy British Chambers of Commerce Southwest, we think the Blue Peninsula, as we call it, has huge potential. We've been working with international consultants who say it's potentially worth billions, and it could be the USP we sell, not to the exclusion of other industries, but about how we can sell ourselves to the world. It always happens before we turn on the microphone. Somebody was telling me they've met Richard Attenborough. Was that you, Richard? David Attenborough. Sorry, David Attenborough. Sorry, Richard Attenborough was the film director, wasn't he? He was the lovey darling, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, sorry, David Attenborough. Yes. I was working for Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust as their operations director and it was a particularly big anniversary for the trust and Prince Charles invited us to Clarence House to a reception and me being me, shoved it in the diary, cursed a bit because having to get yourself to London for 4pm and then get yourself back home again was interesting. And as you gently took the mick earlier, you know, I'm not somebody who's short of a conversation So I was jabbering away and there were all sorts of people there and the chief exec walked over and said, Elaine, can I introduce you to Sir David Attenborough? Silence. Absolute silence. I couldn't speak. I almost cried. He is the reason I do what I do. I mean, life on earth turned me into a conservationist, into somebody who loves the environment so much and wants people to love it as much as I do. And he wrote to me afterwards and I kept the letter. It's all kept safe and sound somewhere for future prosperity yeah well posterity Pros- posterity I, I would could never, be prosperity would you never, might sell it I would, antiques no, roadshow I would 20 years ne- time no never no. never <laughs> never he you know i just think that a life dedicated yeah. to trying to help make the world the best place it can be is a legacy that any of us could celebrate and uh, life well lived also i mean wow Beautiful. what a guy i should just say richard you were telling me because they can't tell which one i'm looking at on the podcast but it one of the richards was telling me about the boat connection they've just launched the Sir david attenborough research vessel that's going to do the antarctic and and that's fantastic and we have to remember that's what we do in plymouth yeah with the Plymouth Marine Laboratory especially and they've got their research vessels and they're looking to do some new research vessels as well, Mm. working with the same outfit that's created this research vessel but we want to make sure that that has got all the technologies that are available to us, it has some of the automatic autonomous aspects Mm. to it as well so it can go to places which you wouldn't want to send a crew in conditions and out of seasons etc and so it's really exciting stuff it's brilliant. We haven't had a public consultation on what to call it, have we? 
Janna McJanna face or something. Yeah. Well, I think the link you were after is the Boaty McBoatface, which they say we're not going to name the big ship that, but we'll no. name one of the small which they did. ROVs, I think it yeah. was, or an autonomous yeah. sub. That was named Boaty McBoatface, and that was launched and went through its trials in Plymouth for approval before going onto the oh, vessel dear. before they the did. Antarctic. Yeah, That's amazing, isn't it? All this stuff going on in Plymouth. Yeah, Plymouth has been the starting point of thousands of voyages around the world, exploration, all the stuff, all the history. But I guess, in some ways, we're bringing stuff back to Plymouth now, aren't we? I mean, Plymouth is becoming kind of a focal point. I mean, if you think about the history of Plymouth, we are now reimagining that history. We're resetting it in terms of saying we're making history now. What People will look back in 100, 200 years, hopefully, and say, actually, that all happened out of Plymouth in terms of the sorts of technologies that are being leveraged by maritime and research vessels and all the rest of it. That's a good point. So think about legacy. Elaine, you mentioned legacy and what amazing legacy, sir. David Attenborough, not not Richard. That's a, a different thing. I've got a story about that in a minute. What do you guys want your legacies to be from either your current role or in general? I think this is my sort of legacy-making moment. It's probably my last piece of my career for the Freeport. And we set out to really bring on three strong clusters of defence, marine and space. And I really hope that we bring in some very good businesses that allow us to use the capability we've already got, take it to not just the next level, but an international capability level out of Plymouth in those three sectors. And that's a great legacy and achieve all the goals of the Freeport. And Richard the second, so to speak. What about you for legacy? My career aim is still to play for Plymouth Argyle. You might be a bit late. I don't <laughs> but know. if that doesn't work, my aim is to absolutely future-proof the Port of Plymouth. We're 150 years old next year. We need to make sure the Port of Plymouth is ready for the next 100 years and to diversify to be ready for the range of different customers that are going to be turning up on our doorstep imminently. We need to drive the Freeport success. The Freeport will drive our success, working with Elaine and her team. My aim is to future-proof the Port of Plymouth as the gateway to the southwest. Well, the world from Plymouth, it has been a gateway to the world. And Elaine? It's really important that the National Marine Park is the trailblazer for National Marine Parks. But I'm hoping that at some point somebody will actually look at me and say she made a difference. Mm. She actually counted. She did something that was worthwhile. I think that's all all of us can hope, isn't it? That somehow you made a bit of a more positive... I think I just want to go out of the world knowing it's a slightly better place than when I went in, so to speak. I've done something to affect that. Do you know, guys, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I'm very disappointed to say that Elaine's the right person for the job because I actually want her job, really, but she doggedly is hanging on to it, unfortunately, (laughs) so I can't have that. But in all sincerity, you are the three right people for the job. Plymouth's in a really exciting place, and thank you so much for all you're doing. Keep it up because it really is going to change lives for years to come. And thank you so much for being a guest on the In Conversation With podcast. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. you. No problem. Thank you. In Conversation With is supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors, helping with all your business and personal taxation needs. Westcott's, we're here. Produced by Fresh Air Studios, full audio production services for business podcasts and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved. Music